It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornchain. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornchain. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm thrilled that you're tuning in. We are continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The last few weeks we deviated Obviously, there was a lot going on in our country. We needed to talk about some of those things, but predominantly talking about our need for prayer, that we need to be a people of prayer and interceding on behalf of our nation's leaders and uh, and what's happening across this, this nation right now. There's a lot of healing to be done, a lot of folks that are in great anxiety, a great number of stresses. I've heard from many of you, so we've spent the last few weeks talking about some of that. Last week, I challenged you to rise up as the believers of Jesus Christ and what this discipleship really calls us to be as salt and light in this world. We are really set before us with a mission to be like Christ. This is not something that we're to take lightly. It's not something that we just, uh, well, maybe on Sunday we'll, we'll, we'll put on a little bit of Christ-likeness. No, this is a, a call that the Lord Jesus, through Matthew chapter 10, was really challenging us to what it means to be a disciple, a Christian of discipline, as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And if there was a, ever a time in America's history when we needed Christians to be like Christ. Now is the time. There's a lot of people out there that desperately need the truth of Jesus Christ. And so let's uh, shift gears again here today, because we're going back to our study. We've been uh, really looking at, over the last few months, the book of 1 Corinthians, verse-by-verse expository study of this incredible book of Scripture. And so here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and what I want to look at today is verses 35 to 49. Now, we're not going to get through that in the entire broadcast today. Our time goes by rather quickly. So let's just uh, break this down a little bit. And what I want you to be encouraged by here today is, is we've got a very exciting study. As I've mentioned, that 1 Corinthians 15 is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. Now, because anytime that you're discouraged, anytime that you're feeling uh, that uh, well, maybe you've lost your focus a little bit and you've arisen without feeling that purpose as a believer in Jesus Christ of what's my calling? Uh, Lord, I feel like I'm on the sideline today. Maybe I just don't have that uh, fire brewing up inside of me to be excited about your ways and your word. You know, sometimes we need to turn to these kind of chapters to be reminded of the joy that awaits to the faithful servants of Jesus Christ, that he will reward you faithfully, that he will commend you. And I want you to, to eagerly Long to hear those words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. So let's look now to 1 Corinthians 15 and be encouraged once again. But let me ask you these questions as we examine this study. What gives a widow the courage as she stands beside a fresh grave? What encourages her in that? Why would anyone who is disabled be encouraged when they think of life after death? How can we see past the the martyrdom of believers in the persecuted church? And where do the thoughts of young couples go when they lose their little baby? What is God's final answer to pain and suffering in this world? These are the kind of questions that we need to examine here because all of them have the same answer. It's the assurance of the resurrection. 
And we draw strength from that truth almost every day of our lives, and it's more than we realize. We don't realize how that truth has fundamentally changed how we live and breathe and operate in this world. If you are a Christian, if you have declared the name of Jesus, if you repented of your sin, and by the blood of Jesus Christ upon you, you've been atoned for, and he is taken as the propitiation of your sins, and now you are to walk as he walked. And now what happens is you have a different perspective. You have an eternal perspective in life that almost tells you that this body, as you may not even think about it, maybe subconsciously, you're thinking, this is a temporary shell. I'm going to graduate at some point. This is all temporary, and the true treasures await. That which cannot be rusted and destroyed or eaten by moths, but rather is an eternal inheritance that awaits. So we draw a great deal of strength from this truth that Paul is going to share with us here. It, It becomes this mental glue, if you will, that holds our otherwise shattered thoughts together. We hang our hopes on the fragile, thread-like thought that someday he will make it all right and thank God that all of this will change. That is something that really is is an underlining hope for all of us. Yet for many people, death is disturbing. Maybe some of you even share the sentiments of Woody Allen who stated, it's not that I'm afraid to die, it's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> now, if we're honest, we have to acknowledge that death is difficult to comprehend. But here in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49, Paul declares, when we die, we've truly begun to live. So in these 15 verses, we'll learn two resurrection realities that will prepare us for our, e- our eternal existence. So let's cover hopefully one of them here today, verses 35 to 41 of 1 Corinthians 15. That Number one, your resurrection body awaits. Now, throughout chapter 15, Paul has argued strongly for the resurrection of the body, but he knows his teaching will spur two questions from us. Number one, how will God resurrect our bodies? And number two, what does a resurrection body look like? Uh, This is a very encouraging discussion, actually. uh, Let's look at verse 35 here, 1 Corinthians 15. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Now, the body, Soma, does not appear in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 34, where we've been for several weeks. But here, in this discussion of the body, it appears 10 times just in this section. So I'm sure you've wondered how God will resurrect people out of the dirt. Maybe you haven't thought about that. Maybe it's just, well, God is God. Of course, he can do that. But here you can see that the Corinthian church or those who knew individuals in the Corinthian church were asking these kind of questions. They wanted the details. Perhaps you still haven't figured out how God will put all those molecules back together again. I mean, think about it. I'll just give you a little illustration here. I mean, if someone died at sea and sailors buried him, a fish might eat his body. The atoms and molecules of his body become part of the fish. Now, if a fisherman caught and ate the fish, its body become part of the fisherman's body. And if the fisherman died and and an undertaker buried him in some ground that someone eventually put a field over and started to grow wheat from that field, and and then the fisherman's atoms and molecules would go into the wheat, and then a third person would eat the wheat, and so on and so on. You see how how, how kind of uh, (laughs) overwhelming all that can be. So how could the first person's body ever come together again? Well, when Paul stood before King Agrippa, he said, Why is it considered incredible among you people 
if God does raise the dead? That was in Acts chapter 26, verse 8. So if such a question could be asked of an unbelieving king of the Jews, how much less sense does it make for a Christian to have doubts about the resurrection? Paul's expectation is that we shouldn't have any doubts about who God is and his abilities. So the quick response to this dilemma is, if God is God, he can easily resurrect the humans he created. I mean, if someone can explain to me how God constructed man out of dust in the first place, as we read in Ecclesiastes 3.20 and Genesis 2.7 and 3.19, then then I can tell you how he can reconstruct us out of it. Okay, so to put together someone who has disintegrated might be a problem for us, but not for God. The resurrection of our bodies does not depend upon us understanding how God will do it. So when we grasp the fact that nothing is impossible with God, resurrection becomes simple. I mean, absolutely nothing, including raising the dead, is too difficult for God, according to Luke 137 and Jeremiah 32:17. So God created the universe out of nothing. And so resurrecting people out of dust is a minor league thing for him, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. I mean, just think about it. What we read in Ezekiel 37, we don't even doubt that, right? I mean, we just, we just read it and go, wow, okay, that's God. That's what he does. Let's read it here. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live, and I will put sinew on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over but there was no breath in them. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood up on their feet in an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves. O my people, and brought you up from the graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. You see, nothing is impossible for God. Of course, not everyone will accept this biblical argument. I mean, Paul anticipated the objection of someone arguing against the idea of a bodily resurrection, and he calls such a person a fool. Now, the Bible defines a fool as someone who fails to take God into account. Uh, this this verb, this word here, this description even, this I guess you could say it's an adjective, it's used in Psalm 92, verse 6, to refer to evildoers who have no knowledge of God and his ways. I would say in a modern context, it'd be like someone who's walked into a 4D movie theater and they're viewing a 2D film. 
You hear what I'm saying? They're just not thinking about it from God's perspective or even the spiritual reality of a God who is outside of time itself. He is atemporal. Time is in subjection to God. So if remember, if, if God is God, then bodily resurrection is absolutely no problem. So Paul uses an, an analogy from nature to get his point across. Listen to this, verses 36 to 38 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So Paul calls this hypothetical person a fool for not recognizing a simple fact of nature that can be observed every day. Uh, you know, he's almost saying here, somebody bring this guy some wheat seeds and remind him how wheat kernels grow and produce grain. They have to be planted into the ground. They die in order for new life of grain to grow. So, you know, honestly, choose almost any fruit, vegetable or grain, and you can see that the, the body grows out of the ground. It's very different than the body that was planted. The seed that went into the ground and the plant that came out of that seed is very different. So the key here is, is listen to this, his point is the body that's planted in death is not the same body that's resurrected. Okay, so when a seed is buried in the ground, a plant, not another seed, comes out of that seed. So likewise, when we're buried in the ground and are resurrected in our new bodies, we will not look identical to the ones that we have now. Okay, they will be better. They'll be perfect in every way. Now, next week, I'm going to remind you of other scriptures that give us a glimpse of our new bodies. But unless the seed is buried, the grain will never grow. So death is required for new life to appear. So what is true of seeds is also true of our physical bodies that God has created, that death brings forth life if we're in Christ Jesus. According to John 12, 24, Christ had to die so you and I could live. Something had to die that we might live. You see that exchange there. Verses 39 to 41, then Paul expands his argument by describing the uni this unique and awesome nature of various bodies. Listen to this, verse 39, 1 Corinthians 15. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. Okay, so these four different types of flesh also appear in, in the created order in Genesis, but in the reverse of how they appear here. Let's look at that, Genesis 1.20. Let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. Let the land produce living creatures, livestock, and wild animals, verse 24. And let us make man in our image, verse 26, all of Genesis chapter 1. So in this context, the flesh of men is made for our current environment, such as the birds for the sky and the fish for the sea. But God designs bodies to fit the environment they live in. So our resurrection bodies will be perfect for the environment of an eternal existence in the presence of holiness. I mean, if you think about it, today we breathe the cursed earth's oxygen, we drink its water, and we eat its fruit. And as a result, these earthly bodies aren't suitable for heaven, nor the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, or the new earth that's yet to come, according to Revelation 21. So to get us ready for the next world, they must undergo a change. That's what we read here, verses 40 to 41. 
Therefore, excuse me, there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. Very interesting how he uses, he describes these things. Earthly bodies ultimately will pale in comparison to heavenly bodies. Heavenly bodies are glorious. I mean, there's a huge difference between a 25-watt light bulb and a 1,000-watt light bulb. So in the, in the resurrection, our lumens of brightness will be turned up to the fullest. I mean, our resurrection bodies will literally shine with brightness, according to Daniel 12, 3, and Matthew 13, 43. Listen to these powerful words. Let's look at Daniel chapter 12 for a moment, verses 1 to 3. Everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, here are these words from Jesus in Matthew 13, 37 to 43. He said, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous, listen to this, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So in verses 41 to 42, it's written to help us understand that our new bodily appearance with a, a comparison between our glorified state that will reflect the glory of the Lord will be like the astronomical bodies that create light. As you see them shine brightly, they're, they're, that type of illumination is reflecting the glory of the Lord from our new glorified bodies. It may also mean that there'll be differing degrees of brightness in our glorified bodies. So uh, perhaps it refers to the difference in glory between our natural and resurrection bodies that the stars we know now still don't compare to what we're going to see in perfection. Now, one thing is certain, though, every resurrection body will be without defect and will literally radiate brightness. So death for the Christian is not gloom, but glory. And we see God is light in 1 John 1.5, and light is a common metaphor in the Bible. Uh, Proverbs 4.18 symbolizes righteousness as like the morning sun. In Philippians 2.15, God's children who are blameless and pure, they're compared to shining stars in the sky. So Jesus used light as a picture of good works. He says in Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So the fact that God is light sets up a natural contrast with darkness. If light is a metaphor for righteousness and goodness, then darkness signifies evil and sin. Let's look to 1 John 1, 5-7. It says, This is the message 
which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So note that we are not told that God is a light, but that he is light. Light is a part of his essence, as is love from 1 John 4, 8. So the message is that God is completely, unreservedly, absolutely holy with no mixture of sin, no taint of iniquity, and no hint of injustice. So if we do not have the light, we do not know God. Those who know God, who walk with him, are of the light and walk in the light. He says in 2 Peter 1.4, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And therefore, we are partakers of his divine nature when we do that. You see, God is light and so is his son. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life, according to John 8.12. So to walk is to make progress. Therefore, we can infer from this verse that Christians are meant to grow in this state of holiness in a in a, a maturation process as they follow Jesus Christ and their faith is developed and grows. And we see that from 2 Peter 3.18. So God is light and it is his plan that believers shine forth like him and be light as he is light, becoming more like Christ every day. We see in 1 Thessalonians 5.5, 5, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So God is the creator of physical light as well as the giver of spiritual light by which we see the truth. Light exposes that which is hidden in darkness and it shows things as they really are. So to walk in the light means to know God, to understand the truth, to live in righteousness. This is why we will shine brightly forever and ever. And you see why this is so important to understand. We look to the physical outcome that like the angels in the presence of God, they reflect the glory of the Lord. Indeed, we will do that. And we will do that physically as we are in the presence of God. We will reflect his own glory right back to him. But likewise, we can do that even in the here and now. We may not physically radiate light or be like mirrors to reflect his own light, but we do that by way of our works. So when we act as the light is, then we reflect the glory right back to God. You see, this, so this is, this is a duality here. There is a reflection of actual light in our new glorified state when we receive our new bodies, but likewise here in these vessels that are temporary, we can actually reflect the glory of the Lord back to himself when we act as the light and not as the darkness. You see, so we can do that in the here and now. We don't have to wait till we're in our glorified state to worship him undefiled. We can do that in the here and now as well. And so this is a wonderful transition as we'll prepare next week. We'll be looking at the resurrection as it makes us new and improved. And Paul is going to contrast two living bodies, the present body with that of the resurrected body. That your present body was created only to last a few years and then return to dust as you are birthed in the image of Adam. But as you come out as in the image of Christ himself, and we see those promises unveiled through the book of Revelation, 
of a new wardrobe, new name, your name stamped in the pillar of, of the temple of God and so forth, and in this glorified state in which he will make you immortal and even have the right to sit on his throne, blessings we don't deserve. And certainly, this is all something that we look forward to. This is why the Lord speaks so often about the rewards that are to come. Even in the book of Revelation, as he says, he's coming quickly and he's bringing his rewards with him. So this isn't just an issue of salvation. This is a this is one where we have the commendation of faithfulness, where we are reflecting the light of the Lord even in the here and now. And so this only gets better as we get into verses 42 to 49 next week. So I hope you've been encouraged if you want to learn more and get uh, maybe get a little more invested as, as a, a part of our community at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church, we would love to worship with you on Sundays. We meet at 8 a.m. and at 10 a.m. on Sunday. And, of course, we're meeting throughout the week. We have a number of small groups that are actively uh, engaged in studying God's Word. And so if you'd like to learn more, visit us at calvaryfountain.com. Again, this is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs. Learn more at calvaryfountain.com. God bless you, my friends. Until next week.